Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, researchers find an 18-year-old bug in Windows, and it is way nastier than you might think. We've got the details, a new perspective on how bug bounty programs could be creating a cyber arms race, and why Wi-Fi on a plane might be more dangerous than you think. Then a great big batch of your feedback, a bursting roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 210 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 16th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris. Everybody, thanks for watching. Alan, I am excited. This is our last remote show for a little while, and mm-hmm. uh, it to celebrate, uh, I have uh, I decided to stand. Okay. Yeah, it's just you know what I'm away because I figure I'm going to redo this whole profile anyways next week, so I might as well get started crazy now. Yes, so. that reminds me, I need to send you the profile stuff for BSD now. Yeah, that's right. Totally. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, though. We can get more into that stuff a little bit. Uh, should we just jump right into our first news story Probably. this week? All right, so it comes uh, – I'm going to bring this up. I'll pull it up right now. It comes uh, from our There's friends – There's some great images on there. At uh, Silence. Sounds yes, like a, Silence. Sounds like some sort of weapon I would use in a video game, Alan. I don't know. It's a Silence. <laughs> it's the name of a company that does security research. They're uh, pretty cool. I think we've talked about them two or three times. Sounds familiar. Well. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so they found the new, uh, uh, new vulnerability in Windows uh, hmm. that they called Spear, uh, and it's basically a, a slightly different spin on – an existing vulnerability in Windows that's been known for 18 years. Oh, that's, wow. Yeah, so back in 1997, uh, Aaron Spangler discovered a flaw in Windows where if you uh, had a user type it in or, or click a link or something and cause the URL in their Internet Explorer to be file colon slash slash an IP address, file name or whatever, it would try to connect over SMB, the Windows File Sharing Protocol, to that IP address mm and get the file, mm-hmm. which is what you would expect to happen. The difference is that with SMB, Windows automatically tries to log in, right? So the redirect to SMB is a way for an attacker to seal valuable user credentials by hijacking communications with a legitimate web server doing a man-in-the-middle attack or something, mm. uh, then sending uh, those to a malicious SMB server that forces them to spit out the victim's username, domain, and hash password. So basically... Uh, either with a man in the middle or just a malicious website, you cause the user's browser to go to a file URL that causes them to connect over SMB, mm-hmm. and then their Windows client will connect and send their username and password to the remote server to try to log in. Well, if the remote server is malicious, it can just write down that username and password and let you crack it later on. Well, that seems obvious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's a serious issue because stolen credentials can then be used to break into private accounts, steal data, take control of the PC, or otherwise establish a beachhead for moving deeper into targeted networks, right? So, you know, you can embed this as uh, an image URL in in an email, or you can, you know, uh, embed it on a website as an iframe or something. Sure, oh yeah. So lots of ways where the user won't even see that it's happening, but their computer will be giving away their Windows username and password over the internet. Uh, they also found that software from at least 31 different companies, including Adobe, Apple, Box.com, 
Microsoft, Oracle, and Symantec can all be exploited using this vulnerability. Lovely. So the, the diagram you have up there shows the victim is going to an attacker-controlled server and requesting a file. Uh, the server there is returning a, a HTTP 302 redirect saying, hey, the file is actually over here, causing the victim to then go connect to the malicious server and uh, give away their username and password. Uh, and they say, uh, redirect to SMB is uh, most likely to be used in targeted attacks uh, by advanced actors because it requires you to have some control over uh, components of the victim's network traffic. Mm, yeah, I guess so. Uh, so the way they were doing it is uh, they have examples further down on the page where they actually uh, hijacked the installer for an antivirus from AVG or the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer that you can use to scan your network. Well, during the man in the middle, so here's uh, the diagram of the man in the middle, uh, it shows you know the victim trying to go to a legitimate update server for you know iTunes or whatever, uh, but instead, because of the man in the middle, they're being redirected to the bad guy server, which then sends the redirect and uh, makes them attack or uh, go to the attacker SMB server and give away their username and password. And uh, so there's a list of applications there. Yeah. It's yeah. got like iTunes, QuickTime, yeah. Apple Software Update, Windows uh, Media Player, Excel. Uh, the Windows or the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer, any viruses from Symantec, AVG, Bitdefender, Komodo, etc. Uh, lots and lots of different stuff, uh, including uh, uh, Box Sync for the Box.com, uh, you know, cloud storage thing, and TeamViewer. Uh, they also say that uh, less sophisticated attackers can launch a redirect SMB attack on shared Wi-Fi access points at locations such as coffee shops. Uh, from any computer, including a mobile device, mm. uh, they were able to successfully test this attack on a home network using a Nexus 7 loaded with all the required tools. <laughs> so you walk around with a Nexus 7 stealing people's Windows username and passwords. Amazing. And not too now surprising. Say, yeah. Compared to when this was discovered back in the 90s, uh, while user credentials sent over SMB are commonly encrypted now, the encryption method was derived in 1998 and is very weak by today's standards. A stronger hashing algorithm uh, being used with these credentials could decrease the impact of this issue, right. uh, but not so much as disabling automatic authentication for untrusted SMB servers. Right? You know, uh, the idea is now with Windows, the server has to prove that it's part of your domain and has a you know equivalent to like an SSL server from your domain controller right. before you'll send it your username and password, which would be the better solution. Uh, but they say with roughly $3,000 worth of uh, video cards or renting those from Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, an attacker can crack any eight-character password consisting of letters, uh, including uppercase and lowercase, and numbers in less than half a day. Jeez Louise. Uh, they say Microsoft has yet to release a patch to fix the redirect SMB vulnerability. Uh, the simplest workaround is to block outbound traffic on ports uh, TCP-139 and TCP-445, yeah. either at the endpoint or uh, at your... Network's uh, gateway firewall. So the SMB ports. Yeah. So if you block that on your router at the edge of your network, then you'll still be able to do Windows file sharing inside your network. You just won't let any machine inside your network be able to accidentally connect out to uh, an SMB server somewhere on the internet. Yeah. And the key which there is probably is, a good step anyway. The key there is you're not just blocking inbound, which you probably already have blocked, but you're you're blocking outbound. Right. Because you don't want uh, a machine, uh, the the secretary's machine, to get an email right. with one of these uh, fake images. Mm-hmm. And so on, uh, and they also uh, they have a full white paper that I linked to that has a lot more of the technical detail. They say uh, Microsoft uh, did not resolve the issue reported back in 1997 by Aaron Spengler. They just added 
the hashing so that it wasn't the plain text password. Uh, <laughs> we hope that our research will compel Microsoft to consider the vulnerabilities in disabling authentication with untrusted SMB servers. Uh, that would block the attackers uh, identified by Spangler as well as the new attack that the Silence found. But basically, there's a bunch of uh, APIs in Windows that will accept these redirects and uh, basically the applications don't know that this is happening, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they just see a redirect and go to follow it, and the Windows API is like, oh, I know SMB. I'll speak that for you right. and make the connection. And, yeah. and, and I already know what the credentials of the logged in user are. Let me provide those for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so it causes uh, quite a few problems. Yeah. And it, it definitely seems like it makes sense to block SMB uh, as it leaves your network for sure. <laughs> Although this doesn't stop somebody from doing this inside the network. Uh, for example, the one uh, in the on the they have a video there doing ARP poisoning yeah. and just uh, tricking an, an edge machine on the LAN to uh, not install AVG, but instead grab a file over SMB and give away your username and password. Check out their hip music, Alan. Boom. Yeah. But uh, the biggest one is uh, if you actually look at the PDF too. Yeah. Uh, I somewhere buried in there is actually showing the output of their man in the middle proxy spitting out the username and password of the user that uh-huh. just uh, hit them. Huh. This is great. This is might be in the video there too. Yeah, I bet it is. Uh, but yeah, they they show using a man in the middle proxy with a Python script and getting all the information they need. Yeah. 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 yeah so they're using art poisoning to basically. Uh, trick the client machine into sending its traffic through the man-in-the-middle proxy instead of uh, directly mm-hmm. to the router. Mm-hmm. And now these are uh, Windows updates requests. Uh, or no, sorry, you're saying Windows update requests are not vulnerable because they're doing the HTTPS check. But now he's installing AVG antivirus here. Yeah. And AVG attempts to update after installation, but let's force an update anyways. So he's forcing an update, and you can see all the HTTP requests hitting the man-in-the-middle proxy now. And being redirected to an SMB file URL. And then I think there, uh, yeah. So then now, using SMB trap, he yeah. was able to crack the password using a small dictionary. And that's just by installing AVG and having to go out and check for updates. Yeah, and <laughs> so if every machine uh, in in a LAN is, you know, checking for its fire scanner updates or checking for iTunes or QuickTime updates mm-hmm. or running the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer, then you know, and the, especially the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer is something run by the administrator will happen probably to be logged in as administrator at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's a, a very clever attack. Uh, apparently, when they were first researching it, what they were doing was uh, they found that uh, a chat client that they were looking at, probably Skype, I don't know, hmm. um, let you, you know, if you sent an image URL, it would try to load a preview of it. You've noticed that Skype does that now, yes. especially if you transfer an image yes. and stuff? Yes, yes, I have noticed. I also know they're trying to add some kind of like uh, Markdown-esque, Wiki-esque uh, text formatting where I put stars and stuff on the output and all of a sudden it starts making the text italic. Oh. But it's not what I meant for it to do. No, you, you wanted asterisks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so basically they're, they're like, oh, so if we link to an image over this, uh, you know, uh, with the file protocol... Will we cause a the user will connect out to us, uh, which will give us their IP address, but also will give us the username and password of the machine, and then you know that might let us uh, yeah. do all kinds of interesting things. Huh. Uh, and I love that in their demo they used AVG antivirus because I know that's a super super popular one, so I think that's going to catch people's attention. But they also they mentioned a bunch of other antiviruses, Sam, including uh, Norton. Semantic, yep. 
Semantics yeah. Norton, uh, yeah. Bitdefender, yep. and a bunch of other ones. Well, Basically, just, everybody uses yeah. HTTP to check for updates. So. And so uh, they have they have the full white paper linked in the article that Alan has in the show notes. So if you yep. want to read that, uh, it's pretty fascinating. And they also have those videos embedded there. We played one of them, but they have another video in there as well you could check out. Yeah, and, they have a video of the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer uh, falling for the attack and a bunch of other ones. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. worth checking out. Any other thoughts on that? No, that's about it for that one. All right, well, I'll tell you about our friends over at IX Systems, ixsystems.com slash TechSnap, the first sponsor of our show this week, episode 210. And you can support the TechSnap program by visiting ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Check them out. They have the best rigs in the world powered by those Intel Xeon processors and, in the case of the uh, FreeNAS Mini, that awesome Intel Atom server processor that even yes. has VertD, so you can get direct access to the hardware in it. And it is a slick setup. They've got hardware for your small office, home office, all the way up to the super crazy high-end stuff you've never even dreamed of before. Check them out over at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And they are truly champions of open source. They employ open source uh, advocates and developers. They utilize open source technology as their primary platform to develop and deliver amazing products. And also they work with the open source community hand in hand. And that's why they're going to be at Linux Fest Northwest in just mm-hmm. a couple of weeks. You can come out and see the IX Systems folks at Linux Fest Northwest. They'll have a booth there. I'm sure Alan will be uh, hanging around the IX booth. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, you know, they actually, last year, didn't they have, like, a copy of, I believe they had our live stream playing over at their booth, so you could, like, yeah, (laughs) so you could could visit the IX booth and still find out what was going on at the JB booth, and that is clever. That is, that's working together. So, uh, I'm looking forward to saying hi to the folks over at IX. I I don't, I don't know. They also have a a great article in their What's New section right now about their sales team and how it's different than every other sales team you've ever dealt with. And, you know, we've tried to sort of touch on the highlights of that, but this is really... uh, a, a tremendous breakdown uh, from uh, Matt, the director of sales over at IX Systems. He's been there he's, for about he's, eight he's years. He's my personal sales guy when I want to buy stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, you go to Matt. That's awesome. Yeah. You get the Matt line, huh? So uh, check him out. This is a great backstory to IX Systems. And if you need to uh, maybe pitch IX Systems to your company, that might give you a little background information about the company and what makes them kind of special. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And go check out their What's New section. And then be sure to come say hi to them at Linux Fest Northwest if you're going to be there. That'd be pretty cool ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Big thanks to ixsystems for sponsoring the yes. techsnap program. We love you guys. We love you guys. <laughs> All right, Alan. So this next one comes from the Coding Horror blog. Uh, given enough money... All bugs can be shallow. And I, I love this headline because there's a couple of things that have happened recently. Uh, Google hasn't been patching previous versions of Android for WebView. Apple doesn't patch previous versions of OS X for this remote uh, administration that gives you root access vulnerability. Also, if you costs- look in our roundup, there's four more important Apple vulnerabilities that probably aren't going to get patched. Yeah, because it costs too much. It just it just costs too much. Do- uh, the Microsoft one where they say, well, you know, these OSs that are towards the end of support, we're not going to patch those ones either. Well, that's, that's the inter- Those ones are they know about the vulnerability they just don't want to do the work to fix it right that's this is more about finding the vulnerabilities in the first place right i know it's just this that's why i find this to be a particularly interesting and relevant mm-hmm. topic right now in the light of all this so where do we start with this yeah uh, so this one obviously we start with the origin uh, the origin of the quote right uh eric raymond in his uh <laughs> cathedral in the bazaar yeah. uh book wrote that um given enough eyeballs all bugs are shallow uh, and, you know, the idea is that with open source software, by virtue of allowing anyone and everyone to view the source code, it's inherently less buggy than closed source software. Right. And he dubbed that Linus's law. Hmm. Uh, and, and yes, the, that's true. The more people that are looking at and working on the code, the more likely are to find problems. Uh, the, however, if you look at something like the Heartbleed SSL vulnerability, it's kind of a turning point for that, uh, you know, it's a catastrophic exploit based on a severe bug in open source software. It's right. like, how's catastrophic? Well, 
you know, at least 18% of all HTTPS websites in the world allowed visitor uh, allowed an attacker to view all the traffic on their website unencrypted for two years. Hmm. Um, you know, the open OpenSSL, the library with this bug, is one of the most critical bits of internet infrastructure the world has. It's relied on by major companies like Google and Yahoo and, and Facebook and everybody, your bank. Right. Uh, to encrypt the private information of their customers as it travels across the internet. Right? OpenSSL is used by millions of servers and devices to protect all kinds of information that you want to stay encrypted and hidden away from prying eyes, like passwords, bank accounts, and credit card information. So this says, uh, you know, this should be some of the most well-reviewed code in the world. You would think so. What happened to our eyeballs? Uh, well, in reality, it, it's generally very difficult to fix real bugs in anything but the most trivial open-source software. Right? If you're not an OpenSSL developer, you're probably not going to fix OpenSSL bugs. Uh, right. Even other developers are like, yeah, I rarely do that. Uh, you know, I'm an experienced developer, but right. that, I don't well, dig and, into and, other people's code very often. To some degree, you really shouldn't. And to exactly. another degree, their culture around a project like that is is you got a certain a be a, of a certain cut of, uh, of a developer to, to to make it in there, right? So yes, yeah, so, well, and and we've seen it go bad before, right? Uh, somebody that didn't understand the implications was like, oh, uh, Coverity says I should change this and right. this bit of code, and yes. then all of a sudden Debian's uh, SSH is not <laughs> working how or, it's supposed to. And, and another closed source example: let's go to Apple and iOS, where they weren't actually validating certificates, right? It was just accepting yeah. all certificates. There's a, a go to fail. Yeah. There, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you know, so, yeah, you want the person making the change to the software to understand the, the implications of the changes they're making, and so that requires them to have built up a bunch of, of state about that software. Uh, so say most of the time, what really happens is that you tell the actual programmer about the problem and wait to see if they fix it. All right, so you report a bug, and then somebody who's actually familiar with the, the project that has the bug will look at fixing it. But they say, even if uh, a brave hacker community goes out and reads the code, they're not terribly likely to spot one of those hard-to-spot problems, right? The same reason why the original person who wrote it didn't spot the problem. You can sit there and read it, and it's like, yeah, that, that looks perfectly fine. Oh, well, actually, if this and this happens, then that doesn't work the way you think it does. Right. And, you know, and on top of that, very few open-source hackers are actually security experts to know to look for those specific types of things. Very true. And so just having lots of... So, you know... The first point is OpenSSL didn't actually have that many eyeballs on it. It's something a lot of people use, but not a lot of people modify. And a lot of the people that were making changes to it were just adding features or whatever. Uh, they're just, you know, they're paid by their employer to make OpenSSL be able to do X. So they add that code, but there was really nobody to kind of steward those changes, keep everything clean, and to remove stuff that didn't need to be there anymore. Right. Right. You know, we could have kicked out SSL well, v2 and v3 a long time ago and not had a lot of the problems we have had recently. Nobody, nobody gets fired for being the person who kept it close to upstream. Where you get in trouble is when you go off and fork on your own and make it really different. And so there's some incentive with projects like that to sort of just not change it very much. Like you can change it to add some features, but if you change it too much, then you might be introducing a vulnerability you didn't plan for. Right, and also you're going to be responsible for maintaining it every time upstream has a patch. Yep. If you can't get your change upstream, yep. then... Uh, but, you know, so OpenSSL was taking a lot of the stuff upstream. They just weren't having somebody to actually manage it and, and, and tidy it up afterwards, too. Anyway, uh, so then, uh, you know, one of the big differences is 
there's a difference between usage eyeballs and development eyeballs, right? So OpenSSL has a lot of users. If there was a bug, you know, in the command line interface where it couldn't generate a certificate or something, that would have been noticed very quickly because lots of people are using that. But not a lot of people are going to sit there and read the whole code for OpenSSL, partly because most people that do would go insane. It's apparently just a horrible chunk of code to try to read. Uh, and so, you know, that it's hard to review. It's especially hard to review code, and a part of it is because the subject area, the encryption stuff, makes the right. number of people that yes. rev- can review it properly even smaller. Yeah, and so yeah, it, it's better to have um, the the rule about eyeballs only works if they're actually development eyeballs, right? People actually actively working on the code and and therefore reading it and understanding it more. Mm-hmm. Whereas just cursory read of the code might not actually find the vulnerability the same way that someone actually interacting with the code would. Right. And I also say most eyeballs are looking at the outside of the code, not the inside, right? They're using the application and seeing what it outputs and so on. And we'll notice problems there, but they're not going to notice that, oh, there's a use after free in here unless while they're using it, it crashes. And, you know, while you can discover bugs, even important security bugs through the usage, the hairiest security bugs require inside knowledge of how the code works in order to know when you can cause a certain variable to be in a certain state that will cause a problem or something like that, right? But they also say uh, peer-reviewing code is a lot harder than writing code, hmm. right? Hmm. You, know, you could sit there and, and rewrite the code somebody wrote, uh, write code that does the same thing as what somebody else wrote a lot quicker than you could go through all their code and make sure it's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the amount of code being churned out today, even if you, you know, assume only a small fraction of that is actually important enough to bother getting serious review, far outstrips the number of eyeballs that are available to actually do the review. Hmm. Right, that makes that does actually seem practical. That makes sense. Yeah, like if you if you look at even the project like FreeBSD, you got four hundred developers working on stuff and yeah. lots more people contributing stuff. Yeah, you know, everybody's working on the code they have to work on. They try to help review other people's stuff, but they yeah. can't really. They're not going to be able to give it. Uh, basically, it takes more time to review it than it does to write it, and we don't have enough time to write all the code that needs to be written. So, uh, yeah, how do we deal with that? Uh, and then, you know, there aren't enough qualified eyeballs to look at the code. You know, the overall number of programmers is slowly growing as we get more and more people. Mm-hmm. But the percentage of those programmers is skilled enough to review it and have the right security background to be able to audit other people's code is only a tiny fraction. And I don't think that fraction is really growing that much. Uh, so, but what's the long-term answer to the general problem of not having enough eyeballs? Uh, it's something that might sound very familiar, but I uh, suspect that Eric Raymond uh, wouldn't be too happy about it. The answer is money. Lots and lots of money. <laughs> is it? Or well, no, actually, that's kind of uh, what they are, the point that I, money is. I mean, is yeah, I mean, I know money help. obviously is good, but I, I wonder if in a way when, when you see these open source projects that fork and restart and new groups form, if that also isn't sort of a refreshing and a renewing of interest in people that keep that, you know, now keep that going too. Like, yes, if that isn't part of if, it. If, a lot of times a fork is, is not rewriting a lot of the code, and true. so you end up inheriting yeah. the same bugs. A lot of times, it's very true. Yep, yep. Yeah. It's, it's, if they are changing stuff, it's not the bits that usually have the problems in it, right? You know, it's like, oh, we're going to fork, uh, well, pfSense and, and put a new GUI on it. And it's like, sure, but that's really not going to find any of the bugs that are in the networking code, right? Correct. Yeah, And absolutely. so on. Uh, and they'll persist. So they say, increasingly, companies are turning to commercial bug bounty programs, 
right? Uh, either ones that create themselves uh, or they sign up for third-party services like Bug Crowd or HackerOne or Crowd Security and so on. Uh, that means that you pay per bug with a larger payout, uh, the bigger and better the bug is. However, adding more money to the equation might actually make things worse rather than better. Uh, right? Especially, you know, they look at things like Pwn to Own and, and things like that, where it's a, a conference that happens once a year where they have this competition. Oh, in the weekend, how many bugs can you find? Well, we see these research companies finding a bunch of bugs all year and then saving them up to announce them at the Pwn to Own contest to get the money. Well, it's like, well, you've known about this bug for four months. Couldn't you have told people sooner? <laughs> right? uh, so, you know, now there's a price associated with exploits, and the deeper the exploit and the less lesser known that it is, the more incentive there is to not tell anyone about it until you collect a major payout. Hmm. Uh, so you might wait up to a year to report something, right, the next uh, conference. Yes. And meanwhile, this security bug is out there in the wild and who knows who else has might have discovered it by then we've kind of talked about this a little bit yeah we have um you know if your focus is on the payout uh who's paying more the good guys or the bad guys uh you know should you hold out uh longer for a bigger payday or build the exploit up into something even larger Hmm. you know kind of chain a couple of them together and, and and have something nastier uh, and, you know, you hope for our sakes that the good guys have deeper, deeper pockets than the bad guys. Otherwise, we're all screwed. Yeah, and that sounds like an arms race. Yeah. So he points out that, yeah, he likes what Google did in addressing some of these concerns. They uh, changed uh, Ponium, their Chrome-specific variant of Pwn to Own, <laughs> yeah. to no longer be a yearly event, but it's available all day, every day. I like that. And they increased the prize uh, pool uh, from a fixed amount to infinity, although that's obviously not an option for most people. <laughs> Only Google has infinity dollars. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he says he doesn't know if what Google is doing is enough, but it's certainly going in the right direction mm-hmm. and kind of not incentivizing people to sit on bugs. Uh, and he points out that uh, adding money to it kind of just turns security into the, a me goal instead of an us goal, right? Ah. When you find a flaw, it's like, oh, sure. Uh, I can make a bunch of money off this instead of, oh, sure, I should uh, make sure this gets fixed for the good of everyone. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it says, am I now obligated on top of providing a free, complete, uh, a completely free open source project to the world to pay people uh, for contributing information about security bugs uh, that make it this open source project better? You know, he's very appreciative when people uh, send in security bug reports and he sends them whatever he can, like stickers or T-shirts and you know, thank yous via emails and call out in the code and the comments and the commit messages and so on. But, you know, open source isn't supposed to be about money. So how do open source projects manage to compete for the eyeballs when the commercial products are, are paying, you know, bug bounties? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, how do you have a bug bounty without having the code be open for people to analyze? So that leaves only things like Google's Chromium actually open to, to this type of thing. Yeah, boy, that could create a problem, couldn't it? Well, you know, uh, they people definitely find exploits in browsers without having the source code. But yeah, I'm thinking though more like yeah, that's true. <clears throat> but I'm thinking more like esoteric, mundane, lower level open source utilities that we rely on. They just don't mm-hmm. really have nobody really has any incentive to go bang on them very much. Well, especially if the you know you can make money by banging on something else. Yeah. Well, and you know who does have incentive is like states. States yeah. have incentive to find these problems in these tools that don't have a lot of attention because they can invest in that as an exploit vector for a long time. Yeah, and also, you know, they can buy up these exploits from from researchers that are just after the money and then not disclose them mm-hmm. to anybody. 
Hmm. Uh, you know, they say the other problem with uh, bug bounty type programs is that easy money attracts all skill levels. You get submitters that don't understand what is and what isn't an right. exploit, but know that there is value in anything that resembles an exploit. And so they just submit every little nit they can find, end up wasting a bunch of time because they think they found stuff that isn't obviously a vulnerability. Uh, and so you get a lot of, of junk uh, submitted as well as soon as you start offering money. And it, you know, it's like, well, if we're not offering that same incentive, maybe the bug reports we get will be of a higher quality than what we'll get if we try to solicit for them, right? Uh, so he says, you know, uh, from his perspective, if you're starting a bug bounty program, there's a couple things to try to keep in mind. A, uh, you should have someone vetting these bug reports and make sure that they're credible and have clear reproduction steps and are actually repeatable before you push them on to developers to look at. Right? You need somebody, maybe a, a modest skill set or whatever, that can take the reproduction steps and see if they can cause the same problem to happen. Uh, before you start pushing it on the developers that have limited time as it is, right? Uh, you should build additional incentives in your community for some kind of collaborative uh, work towards, you know, bigger, better exploits, right? These uh, researchers need to be working together with each other. Currently, if there's money involved, you don't go out and solicit help from this other expert in a certain subfield of mm-hmm. what you're dealing with mm-hmm. because then you either have to share the prize money with you or they take the idea and just submit it first and, and you get nothing. Yeah. Uh, where you know we need to create an environment where researchers can collaborate and and find more of these and, and detail them better rather than each one trying to keep secrets from the other in order to to get the payout and uh, maybe what we need is some kind of reputation system oh. uh, that builds up and then so you know only people that have a certain level of reputation have their bug reports go what straight was, to uh, developers what or was facebook's vulnerability sharing uh, system called forget now threat exchange is that what it was threat exchange yes you could see that one's a little different yeah i know i know but you could see somebody coming along and building a network like that that was sort right although honestly for one with a reputation-based system it kind of seems like stack exchange has all the infrastructure for this yeah yeah stack exchange could be good yeah yeah just because you know they they have this bang and they have the uh uh the reputation system and and you know yeah yeah I actually might, was thinking LinkedIn, but I was like, I don't like that idea, so I didn't say it out loud. Right. <laughs> I like right. Stack Exchange better. Right. Well, because then you actually, you know, oh, you actually found a real vulnerability that wasn't junk. Here's a thousand points. And now when somebody else gets, what, oh, you have higher points, I'm going to look at your stuff. And, you know, we don't want to lock out people that don't have a reputation from reporting bugs, but, you know, to help kind of filter the, specifically, you can give negative points to people that keep reporting things that aren't bugs. Right, and kind of drown out these people that are just uh, spamming you to try to get money. I like it. It's clever. Uh, and then, you know, encouraging larger organizations to, fug, uh, to fund bug bounties for common open source projects, not just their own closed source apps and websites. Mm. Uh, oh, actually, sorry. Uh, I didn't think of it until just now, but this article is from somebody that works at Stack Exchange. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Huh? He doesn't, uh, but he doesn't make that connection. He didn't make the connection. No, he, he, no, he didn't mention no. about using Stack Exchange for the reputation system. But he, says, yeah. he says at Stack Exchange, where he works, uh, they donate to open source projects they use every year yeah. to, to kind of and you know donating a bug bounty could help uh, get a big bump in the eyeballs looking at that specific bits of code. Mm-hmm. And you know, part of that is what the uh, you know the 
core internet infrastructure project or whatever that the Linux Foundation is helping fund. Right. Uh, to look at things like, uh, you know, having Paul Henningkamp write a new NTP daemon that's not going to have bugs like the old one, or, uh, you know, giving money to OpenSSL and LibreSSL to get those up to speed and so on. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the, none of the, I don't think any of that money is actually going into code audit. It's just going into better housekeeping for uh, OpenSSL anyway, and and more developers and so on. But hmm. yeah, with the, with the code base the size that it is and OpenSSL, it's hard to say somebody could actually audit it all anyway. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I know. And, you know, LibreSSL is trying to do some of that uh, partly just by cutting out giant chunks of the code that every bit that they can manage to get rid of uh, just to reduce the amount of of places where there might be a problem. Mm -hmm. All right, Mr. Judy, any other thoughts on that particular story? No, that's about it for that one. All right, go find more info and links in the show notes, and I will take a moment to tell you about our friends over at DigitalOcean. I'd love to have you go check them out. So let me give you a promo code before we get started. Use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean, Systems Network Administration Podcast, SNAPOcean. You get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. Now, <laughs> why DigitalOcean? <laughs> My friends, it's obvious. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up your own cloud server. Now, I'm not like Noah. I don't have like 25 or whatever he's got droplets, I, but I do have a good collection of droplets because they've really made my life a little bit better. I've got own cloud up there to do my phone contact syncing and to do file syncing for show notes and stuff like that. I've got a BitTorrent sync server up there. I've got a sync thing server I've just spun up recently that I'm playing with. I've got a Quasal server. Some of these are on the same rig. Some of these are split off separately. Uh, we've got um, a server that does Ruby stuff that uh, manages stuff from the chat room, like all kinds of things that we have over on digital. It's a great system for uh, our Linux infrastructure on demand. If we need to spin up something, it's it's like, why even go anywhere else? If you've got a Linux rig, just do it right there because it's $5 a month. And you can start in less than 55 seconds with pricing plans for really any size rig you need. Beginning at $5, working their way up, they make sense as they go. Nice, you get you get a bump on specs, you get a bump on bandwidth, you get a bump on all of it. But for $5, you're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and they just are opening a brand new one in Germany, which I'll tell you more about yes. in just a second. And it does look really sweet. Uh, but the interface. It I, before we get to that new data center, I got to talk about the interface. This is like the boom, boom, final like finish and move, like on Mortal Kombat, where like you go in there and Scorpion would do something crazy. That's their <laughs> interface. That's what makes DigitalOcean super special. It's very intuitive yet extremely powerful. You can do DNS management. You can create and deploy your droplets in seconds. You can build a new st- server from a snapshot you've taken previously. You can deploy that. You can transfer it to somebody else. You can do one-click installations of things like Rails, Docker, GitLab, WordPress. Ghost and more, all in their control panel. And then, to top it all off, they have a straightforward API. They just released a brand new version yes, they of. They just released uh, the version two that gives you even more. Yeah, um, yeah, features. yeah. It is great. And uh, Alan, so you heard that they also opened up a brand new data center, huh? Over yes, there in Germany. Uh, we, we have many German uh, BSD users, so we mentioned uh, that for them last uh, yeah, yesterday. They're calling it their FRA one facility located in yep. Frankfurt, and. Uh, yes. 40 gigabit E networking on each hypervisor, enhanced storage on hypervisors using their fastest yet SSDs in this data center. Uh, they say due to its placement on the German Commercial Internet Exchange, the DECIX, the largest internet exchange point worldwide by peak traffic, this region also serves Germany's neighboring countries with unparalleled connectivity and speeds. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Check it out. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. 
Get a $10 credit so you can try out the $5 rig, two months, absolutely free. And you can go create a rig over in Germany or anywhere else you'd like. Get some GeoDiversity. And they've got great tutorials and more. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean to support this show. Get a $10 credit, DigitalOcean. Thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there would be an advantage to me, I guess, I guess for people uh, that sync to my, my unfiltered BitTorrent sync, it might not be bad for me to have a droplet over there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, 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 Alan. All right, Alan, our next story on today's episode, the FAA, the FAA, sorry, the FAA needs more comprehensive approach to address cybersecurity as its agency is transforming. To the next generation. Does that mean drones, Alan? No, nope. this is not about drones. Okay, good. This is about Wi-Fi on air, airliners. <laughs> oh, all right, uh, I'm ready. Well, uh, partly. Uh, so the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, yeah. uh, put out their report about the FAA, and uh, their main points were that the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, faces cybersecurity challenges in at least three specific areas. One is protecting the air traffic control or ATC information systems. Yeah. So the computer is there to make sure that somebody doesn't shut them down or break them or whatever. Uh, although recently the most common causes of problems have been uh, fires and people starting fires <laughs> in the buildings and so on. Okay. Uh, so they mostly been physical attacks uh, rather than cyber attacks. But obviously, you know, the the movie classic definition thing would be uh, somebody hacking into the ATC computer things and crashing airplanes into each other or something. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so better protection against that type of thing. Uh, protecting aircraft avionics used to operate and guide the aircraft. Uh, make sure that people can't mess with those. And uh, clarifying the cybersecurity roles and responsibilities among the different offices inside the FAA. Everybody thinks everybody else is responsible for X and, and nobody ends up doing X, right? Uh, They say the FAA has taken steps to protect its ATC systems from uh, cyber-based threats. Mm. However, significant security control weaknesses remain that threaten the agency's ability to ensure the safe and uninterrupted operation of the national airspace system. Uh, But the bigger part that uh, we're focusing on from this is uh, modern aircraft are increasingly connected to the Internet. This uh, interconnectedness can potentially provide unauthorized remote access to aircraft avionics systems. Uh, As part of the uh, aircraft certification process, the FAA's Office of Safety uh, currently certifies new interconnected systems through rules uh, for specific aircraft and has started reviewing rules uh, for certifying the cybersecurity of all new aircraft systems. Uh, So they say, one of the quotes from the the report here is, Mm -hmm. FAA officials and experts we interviewed said that modern aircraft are increasingly connected to the Internet, which uses IP-based technology, and can potentially provide an attacker remote access to aircraft information systems. So basically, because the avionics and so on in the cockpit have been updated and actually use IP-based networking now, that's the same type of network as the Wi-Fi in the back of the plane. And, oh, what if they're connected? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Or, or what, if, what if a pilot has a cell phone and they could hack into the avionics? <laughs> Boy, this does sound like a movie plot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they say, according to cybersecurity experts that they interviewed, internet connectivity in the cabin could be considered a direct link between the aircraft and the outside world, uh, which includes potential malicious actors and so on. And they mentioned, you know, if somebody puts some malware on, on the Wi-Fi access point in the plane, then it could infect everybody on the plane. It's like, yeah, but it's the internet. You might get a virus. Yes. Yes. We're aware of this. Uh, 
FAA officials and cybersecurity and aviation experts we spoke to said that increasingly passengers in the cabins can access the internet with onboard Wi-Fi broadband systems. Yes. Like, yes, that's not news. What are you getting at? Uh, and then they went, four cybersecurity experts with whom we spoke discussed firewall vulnerabilities, and all four said that because firewalls are software components, they could be hacked like any other software and circumvented. The experts said that if the cabin systems connect to the cockpit avionics systems to share this or share the same physical wiring harnesses or routers and use the same networking platform, in this case IP, a user could subvert the firewall and access the cockpit avionics systems from the cabin. So they're saying that somebody in the passenger seat could uh, access stuff, the, the control systems in the cockpit. Well, and the qualifier was, is the firewall, does the firewall have software? If the answer is yes, can software be hacked? If the answer is yes, ergo, firewall is a security risk. That's their logic in, this, in their analysis. Yeah. Uh, it definitely seems that the authors of the report were not experts, especially on the subject of cybersecurity. And when they're interviewing the experts, they ask questions like, you know, uh, so what's stopping a user on the in-flight Wi-Fi from accessing the avionics? It's like, oh, you a know, firewall. A firewall. And it's like, well, uh, is there any way to get around a firewall? It's like, well, technically, yes. And then right. they're like, oh, and so, so airplanes can be crashed. Is it because airplanes are such a life and death environment? Is that why any, if it, if it's, if it's just, does it have to be one or zero? If it's compromisable, then it's compromisable. Well, that's it definitely all that seems like the avionics should not be connected to the in-flight entertainment system yeah. and the onboard Wi-Fi. Right. But in the end, I guess, if you have one satellite link from the plane back down to uh, the ground... And they're going to be shared by the in-flight Wi-Fi system and the telemetry stuff that's going to report back to the airline and the and the the aircraft manufacturer. You know, like we saw with the missing airplane flights, right? There was like, oh, we get this satellite feed of where the plane is all the time, right? If those are going to share the same satellite link, that's fine. You can easily have a firewall that says, you know, this traffic from the Wi-Fi can't go back into the cockpit, right? Just like a check valve. And, and, you know, th- that's pretty hard to compromise the firewall for that. Sure, it's not impossible, but... And also, the avionics stuff in that regard should probably be read-only, right? Like, this, nobody can control the airplane from, from the satellite, so why should anybody be able to control the airplane from the Wi-Fi? You know, maybe this is a problem with the avionics systems if that's possible, but yeah. it seems like they didn't know which questions to ask when they were writing this report. Yeah, that's true. It definitely seemed like they were just a bureaucrat that didn't actually understand cybersecurity to know what kind of questions to ask. Uh, you know, they have some diagrams further down where they show the, the cockpit versus the cabin with the Wi-Fi. Um, you might have to go up to the index and find it. There's, uh, I think that was it there, maybe? Yeah. And basically, their diagram just shows that there's no cybersecurity controls in the cockpit, in the cabin, or in the Wi-Fi system. <laughs> It's like, yes, because nobody would label something cybersecurity controls. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, the, the whole point, they keep making it sound like if only the avionics used uh, you know, IPX instead of IP, then people couldn't hack it from their cell phones. Right. That's what we need or to do. Is we have the, the, the system, the stoplights in Michigan or whatever we're using, it's like as regular Wi-Fi, we just change like one bit of an identifier right. or something yeah. so that other people's Wi-Fi won't work with it. Yeah, yeah, that'll solve it. <laughs> it's like, yes, that's security. Uh, anyway, they say the presence of personal smartphones and tablets in the cockpit increases the risk of systems being compromised by trusted insiders, by which they mean the pilots, uh, both malicious and non-malicious. So obviously... 
you know, if the pilot's phone gets malware on it, well, he's on, you know, the Wi-Fi right. in the lounge at the airport. Right. And he then brings it in the cockpit, and then it could get into the well, avionics you and the airplane. You and I have a uh, – you and I who – he comes to Linux Fest. I have a mutual friend uh, who's a mm-hmm. pilot, and uh, yes. all his uh, flight stuff is, is given – is delivered to him on a Microsoft Surface tablet. So he brings a Surface tablet that he has to download a database update to like a four gigabyte database every single day. And then it, that, that way it's offline. And yep. then he brings that onto the plane and that's what he uses while he's flying, which scares right. the crap out of me. But Sure, but, but that Microsoft Surface tablet doesn't fly the airplane. No. It doesn't have the ability to no. crash the airplane. But he probably does put it on the Wi-Fi and he does bring it home. Yes, but it... it the avionics pushing information like where you currently are so that the entertainment system in the back of the plane can draw the little map of the world and show you where the airplane yeah, is, yeah. that's exposing the avionics to the entertainment system, sure. But it doesn't mean you can go from the entertainment system and then take over the airplane and crash it or <laughs> cause it to tell the pilot that it's upside down when it's not or something, right? It seems, you know, yeah. a user could subvert the firewall and access the cockpit, maybe, but, you know... The systems in the cockpit shouldn't rely only on the firewall. They should have, you know, the part that's accessible from outside the cockpit would be read-only or, or, or would push-only or something like that, right? Uh, you know, if these uh, devices have the capability of transmitting information to the aircraft avionics system, so I'm not sure that currently is actually a path to go push data from your cell phone into the avionics of the airplane. And if there is, it probably shouldn't be over Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, but yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we hope that the cockpit avionics are actually separate from the onboard entertainment system. Or, you know, if there is access, there's a good firewall. And, you know, with a very basic firewall config that says traffic from this interface can't go to that interface. And we only let this one signal through or something. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's fairly simple. I agree. Uh, so uh, bluebat.com, which is one of the uh, security research places, uh, put up, you know, kind of a little bit of their rebuttal about how don't panic about this is yeah. really just a sign that the people writing the report didn't actually know what they were doing or what questions they should be asking. There you go. That's interesting that they're concerned about it, I guess. I mean, it's good that they're thinking about it. That's for sure. It's good they're thinking about it. I just hope they don't screw it up for us. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes, you know, I I was uh, mixed on the whole – so there's there's a – there used to be a nice aspect to just disconnecting when you went on the plane. Like you could get through a bunch of email, get through a book, and that was I, nice. So far, I've never felt the need to pay the $10 to get the Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, but there are times when, you know, for example, a fourteen or 13-hour flight to Japan where a little bit of internet might have uh, been nice. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Ange, Ange and I, when we were going to Ohio Linux Fest – we decided to do it because there was a shooting a couple of miles from our house, and we wanted to learn right. more about it while we were in the air, and that was really the only yep. way was to go online. So we paid it so that way we could read more about the shooting. Right. Um, or like uh, in my case, I often take that no interruptions time to either write documentation or yeah. write code. Yeah. And every once in a while, it's like, oh, I really wish I could check the wiki to yeah. look up yeah. this right now. <laughs> yeah, so you probably Although, end up getting one. Usually it's not enough to make me want to pay $10. Maybe but. you will on the flight over here. Maybe. I don't know if they'll have Wi-Fi on that plane yeah. or not. Yeah, maybe not. They didn't have it on the one to Japan, or I probably would have got it. Yeah. All right, Alan, what are your thoughts on this story? Uh, no, that's about it. 
All right, very good. Well, fascinating to see what happens, I suppose. I'm sure whatever happens will take them about another decade to sort it out. In the meantime, you could strike now. Go to techsnap.ting.com, the next sponsor of the TechSnap program, techsnap.ting.com. Go check them out because they are mobile that really, truly makes sense. Finally, this is really the way you want it done. You only pay for what you use. They take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's all you have to pay. It's $6 for the line. So it's a flat $6 for the line and, you know, taxes. And so I have three lines right now. It's rocking. Then I just pay for my usage on top of that. No contracts. Boom. No contracts. And then, of course, because there's no contract, there's no early termination relief. Boom, boom. You know, I mean, there's no early termination program because there's no contract to get out of. And if you are in a program right now, like if you're one of these duopoly contracts where they got you locked down, they got you in there because they got you on the shiny, didn't they? Yeah, I've been there too. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Ting's going to hook you up. They have an early termination relief program. That's right. They're going to hook you up with a little bit of money to get out of that contract because Ting hates mm-hmm. contracts. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get $25 off your first TechSnap or your first Ting device and support the TechSnap program. I picked out a couple, like the value on these phones. They just added the Unimax XME 675. $81. No contract. Pay for what you use. That's right, $81. That's pretty awesome. It's got a 1.2 gigahertz dual-core processor, 4-inch display, 5-megapixel camera. Look, 80 bucks, under 100 bucks. That is not bad at all. I picked out another one for you, too, uh, this, to the Ting GSM card. Just go get a SIM card. It's $9 for the new GSM service, and then you just put any device. You put that in any device you've got. Or you want another device. How about this? The Moto G. Moto G, $66 when you go to techsnap.ting.com. Wow. That's a great phone. Ships tomorrow, no waiting. Yeah, ships tomorrow. It's going to come with a SIM card. You don't have to worry about that. TechSnap.ting.com. $66, no contract. And you can try their savings calculator to see how much money you'll save by switching to Ting. And uh, also, maybe hit their blog up. They have a great tip for you iOS users to uh, download free apps without having to enter your password anymore. That's kind of nice. nice. Save some time. TechSnap.ting. Com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I've been a Ting user for over two years now. I got the Nexus 5 on their GSM network, and I'm happier than ever. It freaking rocks. And if you're a small business, it's a no-brainer. You're going to – you got more than like – definitely if you have like more than 10 devices, you're going to save money. Like it's almost 100% guaranteed. It's, it's, uh, and that's not me saying that. They've had a couple of different studies that have actually bared that out. And uh, if you go to ting.com slash business, you can find out more about that. And the reason why I'm telling you that as a small business that runs on a tight budget, we wouldn't be able to have the level of connectivity that we have today if it wasn't for Ting. So it might be able to help you out too. Techsnap.ting.com. I want a jingle for that. You know, like something that's like a, like they have a Ting Ting that they do, like a little Ting at the end of their videos. I should get that. That would be really cool. Hey, Alan, before we jump into the feedback segment, uh, this would be a good spot to mention BSD Now, Pie in the Sky, episode 85. The halfway point of the TechSnap program is a great time to go download the HD version of BSD Now. Because why not look at Alan and all his glory? That's what I say. Any notes uh, for episode 85? Um... No, do you remember? It's like lots that, of cool stuff. They oh, all run together, uh, don't they? Uh, the FreeBSD Foundation uh, did one of the things they do, which is go and visit companies that use uh, FreeBSD out in oh, yeah? uh, Colorado. Cool. And uh, they took Groff with them and took a bunch of awesome pictures. Oh, that is really cool. That is really cool. All right, Alan. So episode 86. I watched uh, the first couple of minutes this morning, but then I had to run to go pick up my truck. So I didn't get to see the rest of the episode. So I'll have to finish it up after the show. All right. Well, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. 
Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or even better, submitting some feedback to our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first one comes in from, what was it, Mini Dozer? Is that what it was, Alan, in the uh, chat room? Uh, he says, I remember thinking that they sounded cool, talking about uh, Cloudflare, when reading Spam Nation, as many people were using that for DDoS protection. Then I remembered TechSnap. I understand that Cloudflare waved its corporate arms around the, and claimed that it had the biggest cyber attack ever upon us. But I don't recall why Alan has such an issue with them. Um, a couple of different things. Uh, most of them really political rather than technical. Obviously, uh, as we talked about, their way they do SSL and stuff, uh, you know, Obviously, if you're, uh, what was it, Ted Cruz, <laughs> his donation site being uh, put together with NigerianPrince.com, mm-hmm. that doesn't, uh, A, that's not how SSL is supposed to work, and it's also, uh, you know, other problems. Uh, but also, we've seen them do things like uh, keeping sites hosted by Anonymous and so on online when they shouldn't be and, and not taking down, uh, you know, Anonymous's problem with Cloudflare is that Cloudflare won't take down uh, sites uh, from ISIS that are hosted by them. Uh, you know, so Cloudflare is basically not uh, being very good about, you know, basically reflecting everything. Uh, but the biggest stuff is, is mostly political. Uh, for example, that uh, when Heartbleed happened, they claimed, "Oh, we've had the fix for that for ever, for weeks now, and we're all we're all of our customers were fully protected. And you know, if if they knew ahead of time, why weren't they uh, helping everybody else get the fix? You know, uh, so they basically, you know, they like to toot their own horn on the news a lot. Uh, they're very good at uh, basically marketing. No, well, not so much marketing as as the." Uh, getting on the news and talking about how great they are uh, and how nobody else is any good. Meanwhile, you know, DDoS mitigation has been a thing for a long, longer than Cloudflare has existed. And, you know, for example, Krebs, who wrote Spam Nation, doesn't use Cloudflare for his uh, stuff either. And that's the other thing is Cloudflare is hosting a lot of uh, malware and they refuse to take it down. You know, they're being used uh, by all the the you know, for command and control and for distributing malware and stuff. And, you know, their basically policy is we don't take anything down ever. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when it's obviously malware, uh, I think it, it behooves them to shut it down. I understand that they can't police everything that goes through it, but, uh, so my problems with them are mostly, uh, uh political rather than technical. Uh, although for technical side of stuff, I'm not a big fan of their attempts to automatically, do stuff to websites. Yeah. I think hand optimization is yeah. always better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of cookie cutter. Yeah. Uh, I don't... Uh, Scale Engine used to more than it does now compete in the same in market, uh, but we're not that big in that uh, area anymore. But, uh, yeah, most of my problems are, are with their policies and, and politics rather than okay. anything else. Fair enough. Eric writes in with a hardware for PFSense question. Hi, Chris and Alan and chat room. I've been listening for quite some time now, and I'm always amazed by your knowledge and presentation. Well, thank you, Eric. That's very nice. On the latest episode, you were blown away by the fact that there were no questions regarding PFSense nor ZFS. Well, I've got one for you. I'm currently using a Gigabyte D525TUD. It's a tiny motherboard with an integrated CPU as a router running Debian. However, I want to move to PFSense. So far, so good. But I have an issue. 
My line is a one gigabyte a second both ways. And with my current hardware, I'm only to do about 800 megabytes a second or megabits. Uh, if I'm uh, if I am to change, uh, and I, I want to know that my hardware can saturate my bandwidth, maybe PFSense is just better and will take care of this. But I assume I need some new hardware. So my TLDR is: Will PFSense boost my performance? If not, what hardware do I need in order to do so? Thanks for the great show. Keep up the great work. Gladder in IRC. Uh, judging by the D five two five in the model number, I'm guessing that's one of the old Atoms. Uh, and that's probably why he's having a little mm-hmm. bit of trouble saturating. In fact, the I think those were notorious for having kind of slow networking. Although uh, there might be some optimizations he can do in the configuration and stuff just to be able to eke out that last little bit. Uh, but yeah, any any like Core i three type processor, or even the server atoms, uh, should n- no problem pushing uh, the whole gigabit. Although you know, depending on what his line is and stuff. You know, if he was getting more un- under his Debian Linux installed, then yes, it's stuff that you can just tweak. Uh, otherwise, um, obviously you want to be able to get the whole gigabit, but sometimes that's not really possible. It depends how you're measuring it as well, right? Indeed, it does. I'm you looking know, at his uh, If, if you're downloading somewhere uh, from somewhere, then obviously you know you're limited by the fact that they can't always upload more than a gigabit a second anyway. <laughs> Uh, so in general, PFSense might boost your performance a bit. Uh, your main issue is probably going to be the CPU. Uh, although, really, forwarding a gigabit of traffic shouldn't take all that much CPU. So there might be some tweaking you have to do, uh, and then PFSense should be able to max out the gigabit. Uh, and if you do have to change it for hardware, really any commodity CPU that's not a small old atom should be able to do it. That would be the uh, and then the other big one there is what kind of network cards does that have? It does say uh, so it's a real tech gigabit, it says. Ah, well, there's your problem. Replace uh, your NICs with Intels. Mm-hmm. Always Intel. Problem he only solved. has one PCI expansion slot, though, and he's going to want to be right. on Right. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of motherboards you can get now come with dual onboard uh, Intel NICs, which is nice. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, you know, yes. Uh, like, yes, the workstation motherboard I have in my computer uh, is micro ATX and has two Intel onboard. Uh, yes. It's a, an i210 and i217. So they're not the same for some reason. Uh, and, uh, you know, the server motherboards I have, most of them have two or four onboard uh, Intels. Uh, but if you're looking for hardware for PFSense, uh, NetGate, the company that uh, sponsors PFSense, uh, has a whole website full of them. NetGate. And they. Uh, will tell you, you know, which ones will do what. Or if you're looking for a more server-esque looking thing, then obviously IX systems can easily build your hardware that can forward a gigabit per second of traffic. Uh, that's I, I went to them and got my little uh, short depth 1U uh, router machine that's got uh, an, I, or an E3 rather than an I3, uh, fancy server processor with uh, the four gigabit ports, and that runs my gigabit line here very well. There you go. little testimonial for you. All right, you ready for Harry's question? He's got a question yep. regarding the best virtualizer. Hi, Alan and Chris. I'm planning to soon move my virtualized servers to a newer and much better rig. At the same time, I'd like to get my setup a little more sophisticated. Right now, all the VMs just run under VirtualBox and Windows because I originally just played around with different setups on the machine, but then I found one I like, so I rolled with it since. I'm happy to use either a hosted or bare metal hypervisor, but either way, I'd like to reduce some of the resource overheads that Windows introduces. Mm-hmm. However... 
I'm a bit overwhelmed by the options. My needs aren't massive. I only need to run a low-traffic Debian and Ubuntu server VMs. So what would you recommend I use and why? Thanks for all the great shows and advice. Harry. Um, it really depends. You have uh, lots of different options, really. Um, what, what's that? Uh, Proxmox or whatever is one oh, that you yeah, type Proxmox sometimes. would be good. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, with FreeBSD, uh, you can run Beehive, which will do uh, Debian and Ubuntu fine. Or now you can also run Zen uh, with DOM0 uh, on FreeBSD. Or you can run uh, KVM or Zen on Linux. You, you know what's interesting? Tons of options, really. Proxmox is, is, has switched over to ZFS. <laughs> there you is go. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's going to be the biggest win, I think, for FreeBSD out of getting Zen support, is now you'll be able to run a Zen DOM0 mm-hmm. with ZFS right there on the... The hypervisor. You know, I just – it's not that hard to just do like a, a basic um, CentOS or Fedora or OpenSUSE install and just use Zen or – I mean KVM even. Right, and, and you can probably boxes. do that easily with uh, Ubuntu or Debian as yeah, well. And yeah. since, since that's the VMs he has, I figure that's the one he has the most experience with. Yeah. Uh, so running uh, Debian or Ubuntu with KVM yeah. or, uh, or you know, um, Zen also has Zen Center or whatever they call it uh, where – Basically, uh, or Zen Server, which is a very stripped down old version of CentOS. Uh, mm. That basically, it looks like it's just a hypervisor running bare metal, but really it's a stripped down version of CentOS underneath that they've just doesn't do anything other than uh, run Zen. So I, I think probably for, for Harry, it's Proxmox VE because it uses, what I like about it is I like KVM, it uses KVM, and it also can do containers if you just want to do containers, which down the road, Harry, will get you a little extra mileage out of your hardware. So Yeah, the nice thing with containers is uh, unlike VMs, they can basically share RAM, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't have to, you, it's easier to kind of make the best use out of the RAM that you have that way. All right, Tim has a very important question, and it'll round us out today. And you can keep sending your questions in, folks, because we're banking them because we're going to shoot double episode next week. He says, hey, fellas, still enjoying the show, been listening for over a year. I was hoping you'd be willing to chime in on a question of using www prefixes in web URLs. I'm tossing at work, because he's not the IT person, with the fact that the web server is hosted via an IIS rig on it's a 2003 install scheduled to be migrated this summer right before the official end of life but in conjunction with that is uh the site is configured only to resolve properly when prefixed with www i'm urging that we get uh that we adjust this at least to allow us to uh, simply redirect maybe to www but there's a bigger question underneath no www or yes www both provide insight as to whether or not to use www would be should be depreciated or not. He wants to know, Alan, where do we stand? Uh, so the biggest thing is the root of a domain. So, you know, jupyterbroadcasting.com cannot be a C name. It has to be an A record. Uh, so it can only point to one IP address. So that means it can't very easily uh, kind of point to a CDN and use lots of uh, stuff. And so it's generally uh, better to use the triple W and have the non triple W be a redirect to it. It just gives you more flexibility with the DNS records and so on. I know people preferred the look without it though. Yes. And I understand that. Um, the other difference there is if you use the root of the domain and make a cookie, it applies to all the subdomains. And if you use triple W, then the cookie doesn't apply to all subdomains and this can make it easier to, uh, to barrier and say, Oh, image dot, uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com doesn't have any cookies and that way 
uh, it's more it's easier to cache the images and so on. Have you seen uh, no dash www.org and yes dash www.org? <laughs> no, I didn't actually know those were a thing. Yes, they're real things. Until somebody linked them in the chat room. Yeah, they're real things. They're real. Yeah, he put yes. them in the email too. Yeah, they're, they're legit. It's kind of silly. <laughs> you know what, humans? Go find something else to worry about, okay? Yeah. Originally, it was because uh, a website wasn't the only thing that a domain did. Right. It did many, many other things. Right. And every machine had a name, something.domain.com, uh, which is still true, but not quite to the same extent. Um and so www used to make sense, and maybe now it doesn't make that much sense. Uh, but from the DNS perspective, it's, there are definitely advantages to keeping the www, and you can redirect people. And what's the matter? Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true because you can do the redirect, right? Yeah. So and, you know, you can do fancier things to have dynamic A records or uh, uh, A names, is what um, DNS Made Easy calls them when they have a solution where in the DNS server you define the C name mm-hmm. and it resolves it mm-hmm. every five minutes and returns the IP address. But that doesn't really work with the geographic distribution type stuff and so on. All right, Alan. Well, that is all of our feedback for today. Uh, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com is the email address or just go to the website and click the contact link and choose TechSnap from the drop down. We'd love to get extra emails, so please send in your questions. We didn't get any CFS questions today. No, yes. we'll get lots of them soon, I hope. Maybe. maybe. Uh, we'll see. It's a little late for ZFS questions now, but maybe not. Uh, we finished the first draft of the FreeBSD Mastery ZFS book. It's gone out to be technically reviewed. Uh, cool. But we still have the whole second book on advanced ZFS. So if you have any advanced ZFS questions, please send them in so I can include the answers in the book. And make cool. You oh, my gosh. That's neat. Yeah, why not? <laughs> that's just awesome. Hey, you never know. Wow, imagine your question getting in a podcast and in a book. That's yes. not bad. That's, that's not bad. All right, well, that'll bring us to the end of the feedback. We'd love to get yours so we can do our double episode next week. And uh, also, I think I plugged their subreddit, but that's a great. I don't, I don't, we didn't read any from there. I'd love to read some next week, techsnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we have some links we'd love for you to follow up on your own after the show, and a lot of these links came from our super powerful, incredible, and amazing subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And, Alan, our first story this week, it's it's a good one because it's about mm-hmm. IIS. Yeah, remote code execution via HTTP requests <laughs> uh, for IIS on Windows. You know, yep. HTTP requests. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, basic web server stuff. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so if you scroll down, basically, if you send an HTTP request with a range of zero to a very, very large number, is that like a 63 bits or something like that? I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, some very large number. Uh, it can blue screen the Windows machine. Uh, so, A, that's a great denial of servers. You walk yeah. around poking Windows machines with one request and they fall over and die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably before they can log the request to. And so... Your IP address doesn't end up in the log, and like, why is our server falling over? Oh man! Um, and also, if you send a, a more specially crafted request, you can make it run your own code or commands, and you know, the web server might is running as like the system user, I think, right? So, all kinds of bad things. Here's what I, I loved. I, I remember I read this. I read Microsoft's uh, bulletin. 
The security update resolves the vulnerability in Microsoft Windows. The vulnerability could allow remote code execution. If an attacker sends a specially crafted HTTP request to an affected Windows system. They're so casual about it. So casual. Uh, yeah, that's a great one. You know, IIS just doing web server things. Uh, that's cool. Uh, so, uh, and this is why you can run Apache and Nginx on Windows. <laughs> that's good. That's Although good they point out uh, there, you know, if you remember back in the day, uh, there was a, an exploit for Apache where if you put a bunch of different ranges in one of range requests, you could cause weird things to happen and yeah. to cause problems. I remember that one. Snowden uh, has uh, some tips for passwords. Oh, well, specifically saying don't use passwords, use passphrases with the obligatory XKCD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Horse battery staple. I don't remember that being in his interview with John Oliver. That must have been a separate release. I, I don't think this was a John Oliver interview. I think it was. It might have been with somebody else. No, no, Maybe. I think it was. Yes, I think it was. See, if I play it, which I wasn't going to do, but now I'm going to. It's with it's last week tonight oh, with John yeah. Oliver. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't remember that being. passwords so important? Or why is it important that we have better ones than the ones that we do have? Because the ones that we do have are embarrassingly bad. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I don't think I'll get his pull. I think I'll, yeah. I might get his pull yeah. down if I play the whole thing. But basically, he says use passphrases, what Alan has been saying for a while, too. Yep. Um, yeah, and uh, I do like that XKCD. All right, this one's I don't know what to make of this. An eighth grader was arrested and charged with cyber crimes for changing his teacher's desktop wallpapers. Of course, he hacked the computer by using the password that the teacher gave him. Yeah, so the well, I don't know if the teacher gave it to him or not, but or the password was the teacher's last name, so it wasn't hard to guess. Mm. And apparently, yes, people have this all the time or whatever. Uh, and he changed the wallpaper. It's like, you know, if now, that was the worst to something thing dirty I'd ever done to a teacher. I think he did maybe to something dirty. Uh, he I don't says, think it was dirty, no. Here's a quote. He says, I logged into the teacher's computer who I didn't like, and I tried putting inappropriate pictures onto his computer to annoy him. Ah, That's what he did. See, see, what I did was take a screenshot of the desktop, mm-hmm. make that the wallpaper, turn off, and then minimize the start menu and turn off the icons. Mm-hmm. So the icons are there, but when you click on them, That's nothing That's a good happens. one. I uh, they had the teacher that I I really kind of annoyed on her computer. She had a Mac, and so I figured out her password because she loved frogs, and I figured out what it was based on that. And then she had After Dark installed. Do you remember After Dark the screensaver? Yes. And you yes. could add. There was one screensaver where you could have it do sounds and stuff. So mm. I I recorded myself screaming into the microphone built into her <laughs> Mac, which is like a really low low end microphone, so it sounded horrible. And then I <laughs> set that to loop constantly on her screensaver, uh, and then I set her screensaver to like two minutes. And yep. she didn't know how to turn it off, and I didn't even think about how that would impact a classroom. I was, yep. I was like in the sixth grade. <laughs> uh, when I was a horrible youngster, uh, we went to a, a Circuit City store, and they had some laptops or whatever, and we were just goofing around. And, and the guy just kind of like walks over and turns off the power bar, turns off all the machines, because he doesn't want us goofing with them or whatever. And we're like, well, Aww. that was rude. Yeah. So we come back the next day with the... I had, uh, written a little uh, registry entry and stuck it on a USB stick because huh. USB sticks were quite new at the time and I, I, most people didn't walk around with one but I did Yeah, my keychain it's like 128 megabyte USB stick because that was big at the time Yeah, it's like so much better than these 1.4 megabyte floppies yeah I run the little and basically pre-login as basically like a service or whatever it adds the shutdown command so as soon as the machine starts up, before you can even log in, it runs the shutdown command, <laughs> but with the 10-minute countdown. I don't know if you've ever seen that Windows thing. It's like, you, sorry, you can't start any more applications. The system's in the process of shutting down. Yes. Save your work and yes. log out. Yes. Uh, and it's just like shutting down, 
nine minutes, 59 seconds. And then he's ticking down and it just says, so annoying. Circuit City sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And they just stick it on all their demo laptops. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. That's better than when I aliased uh, Vi to Bruce Stinks. That was... uh, So I could out Bruce Stinks every time. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, in college, at one point, uh, our professor set up a machine behind a VPN that we could get access to for our NetBSD class. Uh, and so we had uh, basically most people didn't have uh, virtual machines were too slow and not yeah, very common yeah, and yeah, people yeah. didn't have them yet. Yeah. Like you had to buy virtual VMware in order to run a virtual machine. There wasn't a free thing yet. Yeah. And... Uh, and most people didn't have a spare machine to install NetBSD on. So to do some of the classwork, it was like, all right, if you VPN into here, you can SSH into this mm-hmm. uh, this NetBSD box. And he set up everybody with their username was their like student number and their password was their last name. or, so, or I think the password was the same for everybody. And then you would change the password and you logged in. Well, as soon as I got mine, I'm like, okay, there's this kid, Kevin, that I don't like very much. <laughs> I'm going to log in as him quickly. Not change his password, but add to his dot login file cat slash dev slash random. <laughs> nice. So then the next day in class or whatever, you see him log in and you just hear the putties start going ding, 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 ding because of all the invalid characters. And his, his screen is just flooded with random characters. See, it is. <laughs> you didn't no- realize if you press control C, it would stop. Oh, you know, true. I could have I made it worse. But I didn't. This prank have stuff to is not unusual. This, it's, this is not. Yeah. Un- and yet now he's getting charged with cybercrime for it. It's just. Yeah. I hope there's more yeah, to the story like, than what's being reported on, but for what's being reported on... It th- really doesn't seem like there is. It seems like a, a, an abuse of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yeah. And one of the many reasons why the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is no good and needs to be revised. Yeah, well said, Alan. Uh, all right, you, you teased it earlier in the show. Details disclosed on the Darwin Nuke bug in OS X and it's, iOS. Yeah, so... Um, my, uh, Apple released a big security patch, and we're now finding out what some of the vulnerabilities were. Because uh, now that the patch is out, the researchers are, allow- are are going to explain what the vulnerabilities were. One of them is Darwin Nuke, where uh, a, a very long uh, TCP packet with certain option flags set will crash the kernel. So you Jeez. can use this uh, to just basically the equivalent of blue screen uh, any Mac or iPhone or iPad. Wow! You can just start broadcasting this on a corporate network and take out all the Macs in the network. Yeah, there used to be a problem like this. I kind of want to just go and broadcast this on Wi-Fi at Starbucks. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Wait till this shows up as an app in the Android app Play Store, right? <laughs> yep. Yes, the Android Play Store. Perfect. It will. <laughs> uh, um, and then Yahoo found a vulnerability in the Nvidia driver for the the, ver- the special version for Macs. Mm. Yeah, the one sure that Apple how, uh, custom rolls. Yeah. Uh, how uh, Yahoo found that, but they did. Uh, and there's also one from, uh, look at the bottom there. What's the company called? It starts with an S, I think. Uh, that other kernel, the very last link there. The Core, uh, Another kernel. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's what's Sandstorm. Sandstorm. Sandstorm.io uh, found one in the KQ driver, uh, which actually originally came from FreeBSD, but the Mac version is slightly different because it supports out-of-band information. And basically, the application, like Node.js and Chromium, are expecting the FreeBSD implementation. Uh-huh. So they get a notification saying, hey, there's a new message. Uh, and then if you're, if you're using the Mac version, it's like, oh, uh, I need to check, is there a flag set on the message saying there's a new message saying this is an out-of-band message? Because if not, 
which FreeBSD doesn't have that. So uh, Chromium or Node.js and other applications will go and try to read the message, but there wasn't actually a message. There was only an out-of-band message. And so they'll just hang forever waiting for the message that they didn't get. Hmm. All right, Alan. It's kind of like if your cell phone told you there was a phone call and, and when you actually all you got was a text message and then you answered it and you were waiting to talk to somebody and, and nobody was there because nobody actually called you, hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, a bunch of different bugs in uh, iOS and uh, OS X. Uh, don't say tapes are dead because IBM will call you a liar because they've introdu- they are going to introduce a 220 terabyte Ooh. tape. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 220 uh, yeah. terabytes. Uh, tapes definitely aren't dead, and uh, it was interesting to to talk to Matt Aarons about backing up ZFS to tape using the ZFS Send. Oh, and serializing it straight to tape. Interesting. I'm going to play a little of their uh, their video for it here. See what they have. They have. Uh, do you see? Do you, yeah, you see that. This is their tape here that they're showing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, IBM and Fujifilm work together on this. I'm going to jump forward a little bit because uh, they start talking about it. 220 terabyte tape cartridge developed for both cold storage applications. Tape meets cloud, they say. Demonstrating 100 gigabits per square inch is a, a huge um, My biggest question is, is it 220 terabytes of raw storage or is that after compression? Well, here's, uh, he kind of almost sort of, so he says, so he kind of what he says, uh, check, listen to kind of what he says here. Demonstrating 100 gigabits per square inch is a, a huge milestone for the entire tape industry. So that's either compressed. That's probably compressed. That's probably yeah. compressed. Because well, I'm saying they're expected to deliver 48 terabytes of raw capacity sometime in early 2020. Hmm. 2020. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it's going to be a uh, while. 2030 is when you'd see the uh, 230, 220 terabyte range, they say. Well, who's got time for that? I'm saving it up on, uh, on uh, the cloud. Yep. Uh, LA schools not happy with their iPad deal and not too happy with their financial situation are asking Apple for a refund. Yeah, they were doing this big iPad pilot program out there. Well, see, the, the main problem is that it wasn't just the iPads. It was, all right, so we're going to we're gonna give 650,000 students iPads, and then we're going to get uh, the textbook material from Pearson, the textbook company, and then there's some program that's going to go in the middle and be able to let students it didn't access work it or out, whatever. Though. And the the three bits didn't work together. No, uh, the curriculum for the company from Pearson didn't work out, and yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it seems like somebody didn't do research and just glommed on the idea. Ooh, iPads for everyone. Sounds shiny. Like, that was a really bad idea, anyway. Here's an embarrassing mistake. After getting hacked and then reporting about it, it this uh, French uh, TV network. This look at this guy's getting interviewed, and if you look in the picture behind him, the Wi-Fi and network passwords right there, post on the glass. <laughs> kind of like uh, for the the. Uh, Super Bowl. Yeah, Remember? Super Bowl. That's what it was. Yeah, the Super Bowl. Yep. Uh, guys, stop doing interviews in the network operations center where that stuff's posted. Stop it. Well, stop posting it up yeah, on the wall. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, also, if you know, if it's just the Wi-Fi password to get on the guest network or whatever, sure, you can have yeah. it up on a big sign. Yeah. Uh, but you know, why why does that have access to take over the TV network? <laughs> like, there shouldn't be Wi-Fi access to the part that actually controls the TV network. Probably. There you go. Yes. Look at I, this. I love that, that uh, title suggestion that just came in, Jumbotron of Fails. <laughs> yeah. Look at this, uh, this write-up over here from Anatech, analyzing the Intel Core M performance. The, 5-1, the 5Y10 can beat the 5Y71. What, what caught your attention about this one, Alan? Yeah, so um, basically the new Intel uh, M, Core M, their new mobile processors yeah. that they're designing for thin light applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have different speeds of processor like you would expect. But the processors scale up and down based on temperatures. 
Uh, and since they're meant to be on really light devices, it's sometimes it's the skin temperature, right? It's like we have to underclock this processor, otherwise the f- iPad you're holding, well, the, the tablet you're holding, will get so hot that you won't be able to hold it, right? And so when companies don't design enough heat dissipation and so on into the design, it can mean, you know, I bought this tablet over this tablet because it's got the faster processor in it, but, but it actually runs slower because... It, the manufacturer says, I don't want my device to get too hot or, uh, you know, I didn't put enough uh, heat dissipation into it. And oh, nice. so yep. Yep. you have to look at more than just the megahertz rating on these, on comparing the different. Uh, so, you know, Intel makes the processors and the faster ones are faster, but all of them will underclock themselves if they overheat. And so if you don't consider that when you're building a really small device, then you can end up putting a fast processor in and it always runs slower than Mm -hmm. the slower processor Mm -hmm. because it's over too hot. Yep. And you might have actually got better performance by using a slower processor. And it's also that also it's not just the Intel CPUs. Um, For example, the ATI graphics in the uh, 5K Retina Mac or iMac, Mm -hmm. I believe that is downclocked because Apple made that thing so thin they didn't have full cooling capacity. So they actually run the GPU clock a little lower to save on heat. So the same thing can happen in graphics processors as well. And basically, when you're doing anything mobile and you um, have to worry about heat to that degree, you, you can run into problems. All right. But basically, um, uh, the, the, their whole article, just because uh, you know they bought something with a faster processor and it was running slower than something with a slower processor, and like, what's going on yep. here? It's like, oh, it turns out the OEM's design and their specifications about the skin temperature and, and how they design how the OEM puts the Intel processor into the device can actually affect the performance. You can't look at just uh, which model of Intel processor they use now. I did it this week. I put a tweet in the roundup. It was a retweet from uh, Brian Krebs. There's no right. hope for retail security, and it's a picture of a credit card machine where they just put the device password. <laughs> just yes, right the, the password and uh, the other information for it. And one of the the... One of the bits of information, the second password or whatever, is just all zeros anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So everything you need to, <laughs> oh. to be root on this console and oh. probably configure it to connect to somewhere other than the normal bank or something. So frustrating. Uh, yeah. All right. And then the last one, the uh, last tweet, design versus user experience. And it's a classic. I've seen this one before. Design is a beautiful pathway with a nice gated entrance uh, and a and, nice walkway. Uh, so, they, yeah, so the gate's there so that only when the gate's open can vehicles or bicycles or something come through. Right. And then it's got the little U-shaped thing to – so pedestrians can easily get through, but other people can't. Uh, that Non-pedestrian things can't. Uh, but, yeah, it turns out everybody just walks around it yeah. because why go through this – You know, it's like if there's like a rope line at the bank – and there's nobody in line. It's like, do I really want to walk through the whole path and then back? Yeah, and then back so you can see back. in the grass, the grass path has been well worn down as people yeah, just walk around. Because people thing. just go, yeah. yeah. It, and basically, this is what happens with security features. If there's a way around, people will use it. So you have to make sure there's not. Yeah, and uh, this is a great one to look at just for the visual of it. And uh, yeah. it's linked in the roundup. And if you'd like to contribute to the roundup, just go to techsnap.reddit.com. I would love to have you join us live next week. Now, we're probably going to be starting earlier next week. Um, yep. Because Alan's going to be in studio, so probably around 11 a.m. Pacific. Alan, what, what is that uh, with those other time zones? You know, you know, the, uh, uh, well, I don't know. What, you, you changed everything on me. So that would be 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, which would be six, 1800 UTC. 
All right. Well, you know, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar will convert it for you automatically. JBLive.tv is really the only place you got to worry about. Just go there, hang out there next Thursday. We'll get a double text nap with Alan in studio. It'll be pretty Plus, cool. maybe other magic that we can come up with. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Linux Fest Northwest over the weekend. I'm going to try to talk Alan yes. maybe into joining me into, on a tech talk one day, perhaps. Ooh, yes. Yeah. I guess I'm going to be there. So Yeah. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, it should be a good week, and uh, you can just keep posting all of it by checking out the calendar. Also, don't forget you can get RSS feeds to this show, so you get it every single week when we release a new episode. That's a great way to just sit back and get the tech snap goodness. If you're on Android, I really like Pocket Cast. I think that's a, there's a lot of good ones. Beyond Pad, Beyond Pod, Dog Catcher, all super good. But I happen to like Pocket Cast because I have multiple devices. And if you're on iOS, I think Overcast is really nice. You can add the tech snap. You can find tech snap in those apps, or just add the feed that you prefer, and then get the show automatically and listen on the go. It's really kind of an easy way. That's how I get all my podcasts. It's really nice. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.